We started a series, short series, three-week series last week called Fighting the Good Fight of the Faith. It's a fight, church, that we're in together, right? It's a fight that we never were meant to fight alone. It's a fight that we gather together to do. And around here at BGC, one of the contexts in which we fight together is in something that we've called fight clubs. Kenny mentioned them last week. It's an idea that we took from this book by Jonathan Dodson. It's called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. And I was just telling Vicki the other day as I was reading this again, like, if you don't have this book, this is a great book. I've been turning to it now for over six years, and every time I turn, I'm just freshly aware, like, he's just a real gospel dude. He's a good gospel dude. He's a clear thinker. And when it comes to, like, basic discipleship, which I need, which we all need, this guy is just really, like, in your life, in your face, in your lap. He puts the gospel front and center in ways that few people have. But listen to what he writes as we think about fight clubs. He writes this, The growing popularity of ultimate fighting and the emergence of real fight clubs are telling. In basements across the country, men meet to fight one another with fists, chairs, sticks, even computer keyboards. One Silicon Valley fight club uses domestic items as weapons, dustbusters, toilet seats, cookie sheets, rods wrapped with Martha Stewart magazines. When asked why they fight, they explain that when you punch somebody or when you get punched, there's a grounding effect that makes you feel really alive. The pain awakens them from the numbness of their mundane lives. In these fight clubs, men fight to feel alive, to be reminded of their own mortality in an increasingly digitized world. Fight clubs. It was a concept that was popularized by a book and then a movie that starred Brad Pitt. Now, don't go out with your kids and start watching the movie, okay? Even Dodson says not everything in the movie is legit. But there's, it's, it's illustrative for us. It's illustrative. One of the main characters in the movie, played by Brad Pitt, his name is Tyler Durden, and he gives this speech to a bunch of guys who gathered for Fight Club. He says this, We are the children, we're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. The great war that we fight is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all, listen to what he says here. We've all been raised by television or by the internet to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires or movie gods or rock stars or YouTubers. But we won't. And then he says this. In this speech, this is Dodson now. In his speech, Durden pinpoints something that should confront Christians every day. The great depression of a life lived apart from a noble cause. Christians are tempted. Think about this, church. We're tempted every day to believe the empty promises of the millionaire, the movie god, the rock star. We're tempted to believe that if we had just a little more money, just a little more power, more notoriety, more respect, more beauty, more influence, more TikTok, more friends, more whatever, more success. Then we'd be truly happy. And then he says this. We need to fight to believe something better. 
We need to fight to believe something better. Now, some of us arrive this morning, and we're like, series on fight? Let's go. Like, bring it. I'm ready. Hit me. Get the word out. Hit me. I'm ready to fight. Right? We, we, we arrive this morning as disciples, and things are going well for us. Like, we're digging in the word. We're feeling it. Our hearts are in it. Right? We're experiencing joy. We're experiencing fellowship, like good fellowship with other Christians. We're killing it in our Bible reading plan. We're getting into February. And I'm still on track. Our prayer lives might be good. We're seeing God answer prayer. Maybe, maybe we're sharing our faith and, and others are being attracted by what we're, what we're telling them about Christ. Like, we're doing well. And just by the way, if that's you, you don't have to feel guilty about that. Like, that's, that's great. We should praise God for times in our Christian walk where we're feeling strong and healthy. Those are great times. We should want those. We should pursue those. But we know that that's not always how following Jesus is. Some of us are arriving this morning, and we're more aware of the struggle. Like, it was a fight just to get here this morning. Maybe it's a trial that you're walking through. Maybe it's a, a struggle with sin in your life that you're really wrestling with and you feel like you just can't break free from it. Or maybe it's just life in a fallen world is hard sometimes. Now, we know, right, we're not stupid. We know that money's not going to fix that type of problem. More food, more alcohol, more sex, more TikTok, more entertainment, more power, more notoriety. We know deep down inside that that's not, those things are not ultimately going to touch the sense of emptiness I feel. But nonetheless, what do we do? We, we still chase after them. And some of us might be arriving this morning feeling the emptiness or the guilt or both of having chased after those things. And when I talk about fighting, you're like, you know what, I don't know that I really should have came this morning. No matter how we arrive this morning, this is what we, we're, we're together now. We've come together. And we come together to fight to believe this. Your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace to you in Jesus. You're never doing so well. You're never killing it. You're never getting to the point where, thanks God for getting me in the front door with Jesus, but I've got it from here, right? Your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace in Jesus. And your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace for you in Jesus, your good days are never so good and your bad days are never so bad. All of us, no matter how we're arriving this morning, all of us need to fight to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the fight that Paul is calling Timothy to here. That's the fight that, that God's word this morning is calling all of us Christ followers. That's, that's what the call is to us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. This is going to be our theme verse last week and the next couple of weeks. Paul writes to Timothy, this is the word of God, fight the good fight of the faith. It's a fight to believe. It's a fight to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. Now, we don't do this with fists or toilet seats or Martha Stewart magazines, right? Our fight clubs are different. When I say fight club, what I mean is just two or three men, two or three women gathering regularly, meeting regularly to help one another to fight to believe the gospel, 
to fight to believe and to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. And last week, if you remember, Kenny mentioned that the, there are three main goals of a fight club. When we're meeting together, there are three, three goals that we're trying to achieve. One is the fight to believe. Two is the fight to be. Three is the fight to beat up. Okay, So we fight to believe, to keep Jesus at the very center of our lives together. We fight to be the men and women that God has called us to be, and we fight to beat up the remaining sin in our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a fight to believe, to be, and to beat up. This morning, we're just going to focus on that first one, the fight to believe. And the next two weeks, we'll talk about the others. Now, in our fight to believe, it's important to understand that there's a distinction between gospel doctrine and gospel practice. Gospel doctrine and gospel practice. We need both. And Ray Ortland has really helped us in this. He, he defines these distinctions as gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Listen to what gospel doctrine is according to Ray Ortland. He says, Gospel doctrine is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all his people from the wrath of God and into peace with God, with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Friends, that's the doctrine that we believe. We fight to believe not in what we do for God, but in what Jesus has done for us. Jesus lived for us. He died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He rose from us. And he promises to everyone who would put their faith and trust in him that we'll be rescued from the wrath of God for sin and we'll be rescued into peace with God, an eternal life of peace with God forever. All for the praise of his grace because it's a gift that he's given to us, nothing that we've earned or deserved. His grace comes to us as undeserving sinners. That's the gospel doctrine that we believe in. But Orland goes on to say that this gospel doctrine should lead to a gospel culture. Gospel doctrine leading to gospel culture. This is the way he describes gospel culture. It's the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. It's the corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, vibe, Feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness. Indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Gospel culture. Friends, I want this. This is what we've always wanted at Brandywine Grace. This is what we've always tried to pursue at this church, even though we do it imperfectly. We want the one true gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached from this pulpit week after week after week. And we want this gospel to so permeate our relationships that the grace of God is the vibe of our church. We want to have a culture that's inviting and welcoming so that together as we gather together, 
We're gathering to enjoy the gospel of God's grace to the undeserving. And then that's what we fight for in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? When we're gathering in our fight clubs, when we're gathering as men and as women, how do we do that? What are we doing when we're together? There are things that we're gathering together to fight against. And there are things that we gather to fight for. So that's how I want to break this up this morning. Things that we fight against and things that we fight for. The fight to believe is a fight against legalism and license. It's a fight against legalism and license. The fight to believe involves a fight against legalism and license. Now, in one sense, you could probably say there's a lot of things. Like, can we really just break it down into two? Aren't there a lot of things as Christians that we have to fight against? And there are. I think we can see from our Bibles that there are. But when we think about what undermines the gospel in us and what undermines the gospel culture that we're trying to create, legalism and license are the two basic things in our Bibles that reappear over and over and over again. It's a fight against legalism and license. What do these words mean? Well, I think that they're... They're best captured, maybe, in Jesus' story that he tells. We've come to know it as the story of the prodigal son. So Jesus said that a father has two sons. One of them, the younger son, comes to his dad and says, Give me my inheritance now. I want my money now. Which was totally disrespectful in any culture, but especially in this one. Essentially, he's saying to his dad, I wish you were dead, and all I want from you is the money that's coming to me so that I can live the way I want to live. Now, surprisingly, in the story, we know, right? The father gives him the money. And Luke 15 tells us that the guy takes the money and blows it all on reckless living, is what the Bible says. This guy does it all. Prostitutes, parties, like fill in the blank. This guy goes and just, he just does it all. And has a really good time doing it. Until he ends up broke, homeless, and hungry. And he's so desperate that as he's feeding pigs and watching them eat, he's dying just to get some of their food. But the Bible says no one will give him even that. No one will give him anything. But there's a second son in the story, and we don't talk or focus on him as much, but he's just as important in the story. The second son stays home. He says he always does what his father commands him. This is the good son. This is the hardworking son. This is the son who's going to go out and do everything that dad says. He's not like his, his rebellious black sheep brother. I'm staying home. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm the good son. And at the end of the day, he thinks his dad owes him big time. Because he says to his father, essentially, after all I've done, Where's my party? What, when am I going to get what's coming to me? You owe me. After all I've done for you, where, where's my reward? Where's what I have earned? When is that coming to me? The older son is legalism. The younger son is license. Does that make sense? The older son has a belief. Legalism is the belief that it's my spiritual performance that earns me my place with God. That's legalism. 
My spiritual efforts, my earning, all I've done for you, and now, in return, I'm getting what's mine. License is, I'm free. Christianity is about grace. And so I'm free to live any way I want to live. And nobody can tell me otherwise. I'm done with rules. I'm living in grace, however I want. That's license. And both of them threaten the gospel and gospel community. Do we have any perfectionists in here? Any type A's? Enneagram 1's? You need help fighting legalism. We don't say this, but we do believe this functionally and we act like this. We see our relationship with God very transactional. Like I do this for you and I expect this in return. And so we get all twisted and bent out of shape because we have these expectations for life. So long as I'm keeping up with the things that I think God wants me to keep up with, my life ought to turn out this way. And when it doesn't, we've got a problem with that. After all I've done for you, this is what my life looks like? Why am I even following Christ? We're disappointed with God. Spiritually speaking, when we're doing well, so we're, we're keeping up with our Bible reading, we're praying, we're gathering, we're serving at church, we're giving of our, of our income, right? We're, we're doing well. And as long as we're doing well, we feel very close to God. But the moment we miss a day or two in our quiet time, or the moment maybe someone challenges us, or the moment someone critiques us, we start to get real upset about that. And we start to doubt, and sometimes, especially if we're struggling with sin, we start to feel, I don't think I'm even a Christian. Can you relate to this? I wonder if I'm really even saved. We judge other people, whether they're Christian or not Christian. We judge other people and we rank ourselves. And when we're with people that we feel like we're superior to, we have a sense of confidence. We portray confidence. But when we're with people that we feel like we're inferior to, we're intimidated. We're fearful. In fact, guilt and shame and fear, the fear of failure, is oftentimes the motivator, the prime, one of the primary motivators for the perfectionist. We often think, I got to do more and I got to do better. And if we're honest, we think there's a lot of other people out there that need to be doing the same. Now, do we got any free spirits in here? Now, I know, don't get all upset. I know we don't fall neatly into two categories, but you know who I'm talking about. Okay? The free spirits among us, you hate rules, and type A people annoy you. Right? As free spirits, we don't like being told what to do, but we do like this. We do know, we do like to know where is the line. Because I actually enjoy stepping over the line just so I can see how much it bothers the type A people in my life. We might relate with a younger brother a little bit. We desire to live free from the rules. We don't want 
to deal with the rules. We are freed from that. But if we're honest, we can also get entangled into things that we return to again and again, hoping that they're going to satisfy, but they never do. We don't like being challenged about the way that we live. And when another Christian challenges us, we usually respond with, what? You're so legalistic. Stop being so legalistic. Christianity is about grace. Now, not always, but often, we're the types that do overindulge because I'll ask for forgiveness tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. I want to feel happy now. Discipline is hard for us. We lack true joy. We lack deep peace. And we constantly look for the next thing to find us and make us happy. Friends, the good news is that Jesus, the one telling the story of the prodigal son, he wants to teach both of them about grace. For all the perfectionists who are laboring under these unrealistic expectations that you place on yourselves, Jesus says there's grace for you. And for all the people who live licentiously, Jesus says even when you've blown it, even when you've gone once again back to the things that you know won't make you satisfied, even when you do that, there's grace for you. The father, when he sees the wandering son, runs to him. And puts his robe on him and throws the party for him. He says, I'm so glad there's grace for you when you wander away. I'm so glad you're home. Come and be with me. And then after he gets the party started, what does he do? He goes in the backyard and he puts his arm around the older brother and says, come inside. All that I have is yours. I love you. Come inside. Be with us. It's a message of divine grace for the undeserving perfectionist. And for the one who just has blown it in licentious living. There's grace for both of us. And if you're anything like me on any given day, you can be in any one of these categories. Some days I'm licentious because I live under grace. And some days I'm the perfectionist. And neither of them satisfy. There's grace. Jesus offers us something better. For the perfectionist, he says, you can stop living perfectly. You never will because I've lived perfectly in your place. And for the licentious, he says, you can stop chasing after those things that you think will satisfy. They never will. Why don't you come to me? You are now freed from chasing after those things. You're freed from a life where you get to call the shots and end up miserable because of it. And you're free to be my slave because my commandments are not burdensome for you. I actually have designed life in such a way that if you keep my commandments, that's where you find true joy. It's not burdensome. Grace for both of us. Fight clubs are a place where we remind each other. For all you perfectionists, fight club is a place where you can be reminded that Jesus lived perfectly so that you never would have to. You never could. And fight clubs are a place where we remind each other again and again, Christ lived, died, and rose again, not so you can live any way you want to live, so that you can live for him who died and rose for you. Our lives are not our own. We're slaves to Christ now. Here's one of the things, friends, that we can assume every time we gather. Someone has forgotten the gospel. Maybe it's you. Every time we gather, somebody has forgotten the gospel. 
couple years ago, there was a story in the Atlantic about two friends. Their names were Andy and Gabe. They met by playing at a van, in a band together near Nashville just around the holidays. And they would gather year after year and always hit it off. They were, good, they were good friends. But throughout the year, they had trouble seeing each other until eventually they moved closer together and they started this habit. Once a week, we're going to meet and give each other a high five. Something simple. Guys, they did this for six years every week. Now, it got to be more than that, right? They'd meet for a high five, and then maybe they'd shoot hoops together or grab a cup of coffee. They'd spend a little bit of time together. But once a week, without fail, they got together to give each other a high five. It started as a basic high five, but eventually it became a snap, a clap, and then a high five. And there's really funny stories. They would walk down the street, and then people started to join them, like their family and friends started to join them. So there'd be groups of people walking by each other, Snapping, clapping, and giving each other a high five, and cars would be like, what in the world is going on here? And he says, one of those things that sounds stupid at the beginning, but it's only cool if you do it for a really long time. Sadly, Gabe got really sick, and he, had a, he has a rare disease that causes him to lose large portions of his memory, like whole years of his life he can't remember anymore. And Andy tells a story about when this first happened. He said that first week that Gabe was in the hospital, there was a, a special high-five moment. Gabe was allowed one visitor a day, and I stayed overnight so his wife could go home and be with their daughter. That night, I asked him, Gabe, do you know who I am? And he's like, yeah, Andy. I'm sorry, did I get that wrong before? I asked him if he knew anything about the high five, and he said, no, what are you talking about? So I told him the basic story. The next morning, Gabe got up to use the restroom, but at that point, his short-term memory was so bad that he would not have remembered the conversation from the night before. I said, okay, Gabe, this probably isn't going to make any sense, but on your way back from the bathroom, I'm going to walk toward you. I need you to give me a high five. He was like, okay. We did it with his left hand because his right arm had all the IV stuff in it. I started walking toward him. And then right before the high five, he did the clap, the snap, and then the high five. And I just started crying. I said, I can't believe you just did that. Gabe says, that's one of the things I love about the routine of it, not just the mechanics of it, but the friendship part of it that's so burned into my body memory that that's what came out. Friends, we need people in our lives. All of us, like Gabe, from time to time, we forget the gospel. We lose sight of the gospel. We get lured away from the gospel and we need friends like Andy who will be a presence in our life to remind us of things that we should never forget that remind us of the good news of the God's grace to us in Christ, that our good days are never so good that we're beyond the need of it, and our bad days are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace in Jesus. You see, legalism destroys gospel culture because it creates tiered Christianity. 
The elite versus the ordinary. Those who have their life and their doctrine all together and those whose lives are a mess. That undermines gospel culture. And license destroys gospel culture as well. It says we're no different than anybody else. We're hypocrites. We say we love God, but really, we just love ourselves. We don't take one another very seriously, and we don't take God seriously. So both undermine and destroy gospel culture, which is why we need to resist it and fight against it. We don't fight for religious rule-keeping. We don't fight for the freedom for sin. We fight for a Christ-centeredness. We fight for a deeper understanding of God's great love and his abundant grace to us. And we fight for an obedience to Christ, not because we need to keep his favor, but because we've come to realize that when we obey him and love one another, that's where we find our deepest joy and peace. We need to fight for these things. Fight to believe is a fight against legalism and license, but what do we fight for? We fight against legalism and license, but we fight for humility and honesty. Fight to believe is a fight for humility and honesty. You guys are really quiet, which means I'm either boring you or you're hopefully meditating on what I'm saying. Maybe this seems really basic, like we've covered this all before, but church, let me tell you, now more than ever maybe, we need to keep the gospel front and center in us. There's all types of stuff dividing us right now, not just our church, but churches all across America, and if you think that we're uh, incapable of drifting from the gospel, then you're naive at best. We need to constantly come back for the fight to believe and to unify and to rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this sermon is aiming to do. You guys with me now? All right. It's a fight for humility and honesty. Fight clubs are a place where we constantly remind each other to stay humble. It's a place where we remember our common need for God's grace. And it's a place that we fight to remember he's so eager to pour that grace out onto us. All of us, if we're Christians, have only come one way to God. We've come to him needy. We've come to the cross as sinners in need of mercy and grace, and what we found is a God there who's rich in both. Now the problem is that we subtly begin to drift from the sense of our need for God, and there's a couple of reasons why. One of them is many of us are really quite successful. We're well-educated, we've got good jobs, we're well-connected. Many of us are, as by the world's standards, we're doing pretty well. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, you should not feel guilty if you're in a good place in life. Like, praise God. But the danger, the subtle danger, is materially speaking, when we have all that we need and then some, we subtly drift into a belief that we really don't need God that much. We don't feel or experience or taste our need as much. Coupled with this is that there can be an aversion to neediness. If we're honest, needy people bother us. And we don't want to appear to be the needy person. In our pride, we want to resist that. I'm not needy. I'm a helper. I don't need you, but I'm glad to help you. 
We have this aversion to any perception that we're needy. And frankly, wrongly, we begin to think that God is just like us in this way. Like eventually, God's going to get fed up with us. Eventually, he's going to keep us at a distance because we're just so needy. The fight to believe the gospel reminds us that we need to fight to believe that God is a God of grace and we are constantly in need of the grace that he's so eager to pour out on us. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were helpless. We were without God and without hope in the world. But God, in the great love with which he loved us while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. That's when he rescued us. We were needy and Christ provided for us. Not by works that we have done in righteousness, but because of the grace and mercy of God, we've been rescued and we've been saved. And again and again, God makes these staggering promises to us in his word for all who would humble themselves before him. Listen to these promises. Isaiah 57, For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is eager to pour out grace on those who will humble themselves before him. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Peter said, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is eager to pour out grace on the humble. Why don't we take him up more on his offer? Gabe reminded me of a section in Gentle and Lowly where Ortland writes this, Fallen... Anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. Limitless in our ability to think of reasons for why Jesus will cast us out. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain this vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Can you relate to that at all? No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. Jesus says, I know. Us. Well, you know most of it, I'm sure, certainly more than what others can see, but there's a perversity deep down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. Jesus says, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I've come to help. The burden is too heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. 
It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're directed against you. Then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me that you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to me. He's eager to pour out grace. And our fight clubs are a context where we remind each other, humble yourselves before God and before one another. And there's grace for you. We come with a needy expectancy. We're poor in spirit, but we're bold enough to believe that because of Jesus, ours is the kingdom of heaven. We fight for humility. And when we're humble before God and one another, we also fight to be honest. The fight to believe is a fight to be honest about what's really going on in our lives. It's a place where we can share the real state of our hearts and our souls with one another, our triumphs and our failures, where we see God at work and where we've made a mess of things. We're honest with one another. The Christian life has all types of ups and downs. Let's be honest about it with each other. Let's help each other fight the good fight of the fight in the areas where we actually need to be fighting the most. We have to talk about more than sports. We have to talk more, more, than more about our jobs. We have to talk more about just our hobbies, our politics, more than about COVID. We've got to fight to talk honestly about what's really going on because that's where we need the grace of God the most. I was on the phone the other day with a good friend of mine. He's a pastor up in New Hampshire. And I was just really raw and really emotional. I was just pouring my heart out to him. I was telling him about how I really felt like I had just blown it as a father. And I was in a bad spot. And after listening to me and hearing what I had to say, he just said, you know, um, sounds like you're really trusting a lot more in yourself than you are in God. It sounds like you're assuming responsibility that only God can assume. And the gospel reminds us that um, you have failed as a father and in all other kinds of areas in your life. But Jesus' grace is big enough for your failures and you can trust in God's love for you in Christ that even in your failures, his grace supersedes those things. Take responsibility for what yours is to take, but then trust in the sovereign grace of God in your parenting. He corrected me and comforted me. I felt like I just got punched and picked up at the same time. It was a great exchange. Are you that type of friend? Do you have that type of friend? That's what fight clubs are meant to be. It's meant to be a place where we can come with the raw and real stuff of life and be so familiar with the gospel that we love and we preach and we practice that we can listen. And by the way, when someone pours their heart out to you, don't try to fix them right away. The best thing you do is just thank them for being honest. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of 
overcoming all types of junk to actually tell somebody else what's really going on in life. And there's all types of hurdles that we need to cross over to get there. So when people open up to us, let's first just thank them for their honesty. Because the more honest and the more vulnerable we can be and the more we openly receive that and humbly get down in there with them in the mess, the more of a gospel culture begins to flourish in our church. So we thank them, but then we remind them of the gospel. It's not our works that keep us close to God. It's what Jesus has done on our behalf that constantly brings us back to him, and that never gets old. That's never something we move away from. That's the type of culture that the gospel is meant to create, a humble, honest culture. We can confess. We can hear from one another of God's free forgiveness to us in Christ. And then we can encourage one another to get back up and get into the fight and to press on. Like I said, I, I think probably now, at least more than in my history of 10 years here as a pastor at the church, I think more than ever, now is the time where we need to rally around what Paul called the matter of first importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exalting Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Church, that's what we are about. This is and always will be the matter of first importance. There's all kinds of things that are and will threaten our division. That's always going to be the case. That's always been the case for the church. But this is the matter of first importance. This is what we rally around. The fight to believe is a fight to believe in the gospel that has saved us all and that unifies us as God's people. In 10th Prez, a church down in Philly, this is their call to worship. This is what they rally around every week. And if you're not in a fight club, let me encourage you to start one. Hit up a buddy or two, or ladies meet together and say, can we just start getting together regularly to talk about life and to help one another to apply the gospel? And if you're already in one, great, keep going. But the next time you meet, or for the first time you meet, consider this as where you start and where you open. Every week, 10th Prez gets up, somebody gets up and says these words, to all who are weary and need rest, To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a Savior. This church or this fight club opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ. The ally of his enemies. The defender of the guilty the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. Together, church, we fight to believe in this Jesus who welcomes us with this good news all the time. Amen.